Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy, and uh, I got to say, I'm fully bringing my continued excitement from the Peter Frampton interview into today's conversation with Al Franken. We're going from Frampton to Franken, and I am really excited. We're going to bring out Al in just a moment, but first, thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening. And we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So here's some feedback from this past week. Addie McLean writes, You should have a dating site. I love all the creative types you interview. So cool. I don't know about that. Uh, good suggestion. Interesting. But, I, I'll, uh, I'll step in and help. But uh, I think I'm staying out of that cesspool. Uh, on our Ted Hope interview, Carolyn Marsh Blackwood writes, As a small independent producer with a movie in the can and with none of the actors willing to support it, even with permission, they are scared of perception, this strike is very hard on us. Yeah, Absolutely, it's been hard on so many people, but there is some promising stuff going on. Uh, negotiations taking place, and it could be resolved soon, hopefully. Brian Kiernan Devine Jr. says, Love Ted. Love those Hartley pictures. Hal Hartley. Love those Hartley pictures. Something fierce. Thanks, Brian. And on our George Hahn interview, Polly Kaplan writes, I love George. So the two of you are a great team. The podcast was wonderful. Thanks. Thank you, Polly. All right. Let's get to our not one, not two, but three big things today. Uh, we're bringing back Trump. Because he's a big thing, figuratively and literally. We learned this week that he told his former assistant, Molly Michael, to say that she didn't know anything about the boxes containing classified documents that he stole and stashed at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, she apparently had worked for him in an area outside the Oval Office and then also in his post-presidential office. What, what, what is Trump's post-presidential office like? There's probably like one pen, a Playboy magazine... <laughs> And a, like, a, like a case of Diet Cokes. We know there's a bathroom with a chandelier. Um, but, you know, you got to give Trump credit for being so green that he also used classified notes to write a to-do list for Molly Michaels. And so, you know, classified. he was reusing the paper, and that's a pretty good thing. Oh, yeah. I do that all the time. Like, just, you know, you need to send somebody a jot down a memo for yourself. Just grab a top-secret nuclear document. I mean, what are you going to do with them? Either that or you put them in your boxes in your bathroom. Yeah. I mean, it's a better use. I mean, either that or you send them to the National Archives for historical preservation. They're all his. They're I all mean, his. It's a, it's a tough choice. It's an absolutely tough choice. And then he literally said to her, quote, this is a quote, when he learned the feds were coming, he said to her, you don't know anything about the boxes. There's nothing to see here. There's nothing. There's no boxes. Those cardboard things stacked up, 20 of them in the toilet. <laughs> You don't see them. If you got to pee, just move around them. That was the quote. <laughs> yeah, that was literally the quote. Um, and then we also learned on, uh, and I, I, I say this so angrily as a Jew, sitting here with two of my fellow heaps, on Rosh Hashanah, this motherfucker attacked Jews. He said that they destroyed Israel and America. He pretty much warned them that they got to get their shit together or else. And uh, reminded them how fucking great he is for Jews before saying, hey, happy new year. He knows the Jews. He's friends. He has Jewish my friends. My Jews. Where's my Jews? I think he just couldn't let Elon Musk get all the anti-Semitic <laughs> attention. That's and, true. You know, he had to get a little. Nobody, nobody hates Jews like Trump. <laughs> nobody. Yeah, it's true. Special place in the book of life for him. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, you know, this country, our economy is faced with this looming catastrophic shutdown. Yes. And Trump posts on his piece of shit social media site, Truth Social, the other night urging Republicans, urging Kevin McCarthy to shut the government down. Why? 
because it'll stop the funding of his investigation. Of like, it'll stop the funding of his. This is he wants to throw this country into economic catastrophe just to shut down. First of all, it wouldn't shut. He's he's not only a sociopath, self-serving sociopath, but he's a fucking moron. Does he actually think the, the prosecutions would be shut down and defunded? I'm sure he thinks that, actually, but it's no harm to him. I mean, he's always encouraged shutdowns. The entire House is in a shambles right now. You have Matt Gates planting a motion to vacate in the congressional men's room, which you don't need a motion to vacate. You can actually just bring it up on the floor, but this was just a little show. Wasn't, wasn't that motion to vacate issued to the underage girl he was in the bathroom with? Oh, <laughs> hey, boy, bada bing, bada boom. Wow. <laughs> it's comedy, folks. Can't get sued if it's comedy. Satire. Okay. Total satire. That didn't happen. I'm just being funny. And speaking of the House and the shutdown, I want to read something that uh, Paul Krugman of the New York Times wrote yesterday about Kevin McCarthy. At this point, it's hard to see how he can pass any bill maintaining federal funding, let alone one that the Senate, controlled by Democrats, will agree to. So we seem to be headed for a federal shutdown at the end of this month with many important government activities suspended until further notice. It looks like it's going to happen. These motherfuckers went on recess. Yes. They're like, check, please. Yep. I think we knew when it took 12 times to get him elected as the House Speaker that this was going to happen eventually, that everything would fall apart. They haven't done anything. It's like building an apartment building on a cardboard foundation. Like, it's just a matter of time. Like, one little gust of wind or too much rain that's going to make the... It doesn't affect any of the Republicans personally of this group, and they want to blow up the fucking government. They want to, they just want to blow it up. And so the safety nets or the environment and clean water, like who the fuck cares? I mean, like this makes me, I'm cursing, sorry, mom, but this makes me so angry because I think this is their ultimate goal to just blow it, it up. It is. And I'm, I appreciate you apologizing to your mother. <laughs> And even more importantly, we must wish your father, Jeff, a very happy birthday. Thank you. Happy birthday, Jeff. Jeff is one of our most loyal listeners and critics. And uh, (laughs) another day, another dollar. I'm just talking about his relationship with Jen. (laughs) Not even, not even the podcast. No, I'm talking about the podcast. Here's more from Krugman. McCarthy is a weak leader, especially compared with Nancy Pelosi, his formidable predecessor. But even a superb leader would probably be unable to transcend the dynamics of a party that has been extremist for a generation, but has now gone beyond extremism to nihilism. And to your point, Jen, they want to burn this motherfucker down Mm -hmm. to the ground. But, you know, this is why Trump is ahead by 47 points, because of ethics and morality and common decency and integrity and respect for the law and respect for humanity mattered on any conceivable level to them. How would Trump, having been indicted four times and indicted uh, on 91 felony charges, how would he be ahead by 47 points? How would he be their choice? How would the, the Christian right, the, the evangelicals, how would they be his choice? Why would he be orange Jesus? Right. You bring this up every week and every week I think, oh, my God, we're talking about Trump again. But frankly, when you say it like that, it's so true. It doesn't compute. It's hard to process. And that's why, you know, we have to continue to be vigilant. And make sure that people don't forget why exactly. we're in an existential crisis right now. Yeah. And we also have to point out the hypocrisy. True. Which gets us to our next big thing, which is the John Fetterman debacle. My God, this man who, by the way, I don't even know if there are clothes that actually are manufactured Aww. that fit him because he's so fucking big. Yes. And I'm not saying he's fat. He's just nice. huge. He's a huge, like having him sit in a suit, if, it, if he could actually find one, like, but he's trying to be comfortable. Plus, the guy had a fucking stroke. He had a stroke. But here's the main thing. Republicans are okay with each other going into Congress carrying guns. Mm-hmm. Guns, right? Mm-hmm. It's okay to go and sit in that fucking chamber with a Glock. Not a hoodie. Hoodie? No. Shorts? Mm-mm. You have to draw the line guns. somewhere, Andy. Guns. You have to draw the line. So... As they're attacking Fetterman mm-hmm. for wearing a hoodie and shorts because of the uh, impact on decorum and, and decency and respect for the, for the institution, 
They're also working with, you know, the handjob honey. <laughs> <laughs> like Matt Gates. Matt Gates says, I stand with Lauren Boebert. I stand with Christy Nome. And it's like this woman jacked off her date in a crowded theater full of kids and was blowing vape smoke at a pregnant woman sitting behind. Like Fetterman's wearing a hoodie. She apologized. After she was caught on camera, after she lied. After she got... I mean, the hypocrisy is stunning. You know, you have Marjorie Taylor Greene and Boebert screaming in the, in, in the house when they don't like something. Liar, liar, to the President of the United States. But like Fetterman wearing a hoodie is causing explosive diarrhea with these people. That's where we're... Like, again, to your point, Jen, it's like everything is upside down. Yes, they don't even care that they're caught in lies and hypocrisy over and over and over again. And apparently their constituents don't care either. Well, Trump said it himself. I love the uneducated. You know, when you're when you're stupid and you hate black people, you could pretty much vote for anyone and elect anyone, right? And that's what Trump, how he got into the Oval Office, playing up on people's stupidity and their hatred and racism. And Republicans are just watching the master at it, and and whether it's DeSantis or any of these people, they're all trying to duplicate his behavior. They can't do it as successfully or even close because they lack that thing that he has, mm. which I always say exists, even though I hate to admit it. Mm -hmm. He's got charm in, in and charisma that works beautifully to the people it's targeted to. It doesn't work on us, but it works on them. Mm -hmm. That's why they stand in line for 15 fucking hours in the rain and the cold to see his rallies because they're going to see a show. They're not going to see DeSantis, you know, talk about policy. Yep. Um, so you're going to attack this guy. Forget the fact that he had a stroke. They're mocking him because he spoke yesterday in, in the Senate and he was passionately talking about his, his pain and his suffering. And then he started weeping as he was talking. They're mocking him, mocking him. Where do they get that from? Who else mocked a disabled person? Remember that, right? So he's just an awful, evil, soulless ghoul, and they're all just trying to emulate him. I mean, the, the era of Trump will be most known not for the indictments and the prosecutions and maybe the prison, but it'll just be known for how it, it just... It's cruel. Ripped the sh it yeah. just turned so America cruel. into this, or at least half of the country or 30% of the country into absolute cruel people yeah the cruelty you know um all right let's get to uh our winners and losers my winner democrats keep control of the pennsylvania house my loser kevin mccarthy first for refusing to allow zelensky to address a joint session of congress and still no gop agreement on a bill to fund the government ditto on mccarthy but i have a loser as well my winner, though, is John Fetterman, because he's won another round against the crazy trolls who are now saying that he's not actually who he is, and he's actually a doppelganger, and he has some pretty good comments about that. And my loser are families, and specifically working women, because in less than 10 days, more than 3 million children who now receive child care are going to lose that funding. And this is just at a time when women are increasing their space in the working place. So this is going to be a catastrophe. My winner is Democrat Lindsey Powell, a nonprofit worker and former staffer for the city of Pittsburgh who won a special election Tuesday and gave Democrats control of the state house. My loser, also Kevin McCarthy, who continues to demonstrate why he's the worst speaker in House history. But honorable mention to Melania Trump, who's very busy out there hawking her new Christmas ornaments. But isn't, wait a second, Matt, Jen, I kind of remember back in 2020, uh, Melania Trump saying, quote, who gives a fuck about the Christmas stuff and decorations? End quote. So interesting. Interesting. Interesting marketing strategy. <laughs> Next thing you know, she's going to turn it into an NFT Christmas Jesus ornament. Christ. All right. That brings us to our weekly rant. Last week, Colorado Congresswoman Lauren Boebert went to see the musical Beetlejuice in a Denver theater full of kids. She was initially accused of vaping and asked to stop by the pregnant woman sitting behind her and in general was acting like a rude, classless asshole. 
and she was ejected for, quote, causing a disturbance. She denied it all. But then the night vision security footage was released by the theater. And not only was she proven to be a colossal liar, clearly vaping and acting out, she was also caught jerking off her Tinder toy and getting her boobs groped so aggressively it was like watching a crypto bro waxing his Ferrari. Conduct in a public venue not just unbecoming for a congresswoman, but for anyone with an ounce of dignity and self-respect. And like clockwork, MAGA world took to her defense. Her Florida colleague, Matt Gates tweeted, I stand with Lauren Boebert and Christy Nome." the latter being South Dakota's Christian family values-obsessed governor who was just exposed for having an extramarital affair with former Trump stooge Corey Lewandowski, who actually seems to have either fucked, groped, or propositioned every woman in GOP politics. It should be noted that Gates himself, these past couple of years, was the subject of intense investigation into sex trafficking of a minor. So what the fuck exactly is Gates, quote, standing with? Incivility? Infidelity? Lewd public sexual behavior around children? Exposing a pregnant woman to harmful chemicals? He and others like him are shamelessly defending the indefensible. They are so drunk on the Trump MAGA Kool-Aid that they've lost all respect for humanity. Anything and everything is okay, from sexual assault and rape, to corruption and fraud, to deadly insurrection and treason, all in sycophantic fealty to Orange Jesus. They've become pathetic, shameless, subhuman ghouls. But wait! Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman walked into his chamber this week, committing the despicable act of wearing a hoodie and shorts, his signature outfit, and the bloodthirsty right-wing hypocrites collectively lost their fucking minds, vomiting up nonstop about decorum and common decency regarding our revered halls of Congress. Call me crazy, but I'll take a hoodie over a dime store hand job, honey, any day. All right, it is time for Al Franken. Or should I say, it's time for Al Franken. And this bio was written by Al Franken. As far as anyone knows, Al Franken is the only U.S. senator who was also one of the original writers for Saturday Night Live. During his 15 seasons with SNL, Franken won five Emmys for writing and producing. He's also the author of four number one New York Times bestsellers, including Rush Limbaugh as a Big Fat Idiot and Other Observations, Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them, A Fair and Balanced Look at the Right, and Al Franken, Giant of the Senate. Franken served Minnesota in the Senate from 2009 to 2018, clobbering his first opponent, incumbent Senator Norm Coleman, by 312 votes. He won his second election by well over 200,000 votes. The Al Franken Podcast is one of the nation's top 10 politics and public affairs podcasts with guests like Malcolm Nance, Sarah Silverman, Paul Krugman, Chris Rock, and Michelle Obama. Well, not Michelle Obama, but guests like her. His political action committee, Midwest Values PAC, supports progressive Democrats, voting rights, and a host of other good non-political things. Al and his wife, Franny, have been married for 47 years, many of them happy. They have two kids and four grandchildren. Al, welcome into the back room. Oh, thank you. Thanks a lot, Andy. I don't think in this conversation there's going to be anything as honest and genuine and inspiring as something I read in your bio, which says you were married for 47 years, many of them happy. Yes. It's uh, funny, when I first started the campaign in, in uh, for Senate Minnesota, I had a, a great reporter uh, from the Minneapolis Star Tribune, and she was recording me, but her, her recorder broke or something, and she she did the joke, most of them happy. And <laughs> There's a difference. <laughs> I said, however many years I've been married at that point, let's say 30 and and she wrote, uh, he said he'd been married 30 years, most of them happy. And I just, uh, her name is Rachel Stassenberger. She works, she's in Iowa now at the uh, Des Moines Register. But I just, I said, it's many of them happy is the joke. <laughs> not most of them happy. Yeah, most kind of sounds like they were all happy. It's not as funny with many of them happy. And she said, my recorder broke. And I haven't, I haven't talked to her. I talked to her periodically, 
and I don't talk to her without saying it's many of them here. Do you do you want to go on record and and quantify many? Is it? It's a joke. <laughs> many is funnier than most. It's ambiguous. Most says more than fifty percent. Yes. Many. Many says ambiguous. you got a problem with your wife when you get home. Uh, my my wife loves the joke and real and she also understands that many <laughs> joke, not most. When she describes, what, what does it say in her bio about the 47 years? I don't think she has a bio. <laughs> but if she had one, would she, would she, would yep. she say many or most? She would say, uh, she would say the joke is many. Okay. All right. That's probably. It's about the joke. I'm, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be at the Ulster Performing Arts Center. Uh, yes. I guess next year. 29. And We're going to talk about it, that. Hurting of jokes Extremely important. Yes. Without levity, where would we be? Before we get into all the important issues of the day and your upcoming show on the 29th at the Ulster Performing Center in Kingston, I see I'm going to be promoting I, I was, it multiple times. Uh, that, explaining why many <laughs> is so important. A joke is a joke, and the wording of a joke is fine. That's how we got into the Ulster uh, yes. performance. But let's get, what were you going to go to? I'm going to go to your childhood. I want to know when you were little, like, was politics and comedy, when were they on your radar? Well, that's such a good question because um, both were on my radar really early. Comedy, especially. Um, like, I, it's kind of embarrassing. Uh, uh, but, like, when I was three years old, I did an impression of uh, Jackie Gleason. Doing and away we go. That was my and away we go. And my mom, this is what's embarrassing, would have it have me do it for company. So it feels like a very sad Billy Crystal moment from my youth. Like Alan, Alan is very funny. And here, Alan, do your Jackie Gleason impression. So that was uh, politics became important. To me, I'd say around 1963, when I was 12 years old, and it was my dad had been a Republican. My I grew up in Minnesota, but my dad uh, grew up in New York, and he was a kind of a Javits uh, Republican, you know, a uh, just a, a progressive Republican when when there were those things, right? Mm -hmm. The liberal Republican. And he didn't like Tammany Hall. My dad, my dad was born in 1908, and he didn't like Tammany, so he was a Republican. And then uh, in 1963, we would watch the news uh, when we ate dinner. We had tray tables. My mom was a great cook. These weren't TV dinners. She'd make the great dinner in the kitchen, and then we'd sit at uh, tray tables. My brother and me and parents and we'd watch the news and uh very distinctly remember this 63 uh southern sheriff uh putting clubs and dogs and fire hoses on demonstrators and my dad pointing to the tv and saying no jew can be for this no jew can be for this and he had been a republican and then in 64, Barry Goldwater voted against the Civil Rights Bill. And my dad became a Democrat when he became the nominee and didn't look back. My dad protested the war in Vietnam and became a very progressive, well-stone Democrat. Uh, both my parents were. But that is, I think, the moment that politics became really important for me. When my dad said, no Jew can be for that. Mm -hmm. Now, everyone knows that you, as a young man, ended up on Saturday Night Live. And so you clearly pursued the comedic part of your life. But was there anything that you did, you know, dip your toes in the, in the political waters at the same time you were pursuing comedy? Or was that just something that came after? You? Well, we, Tom Davis and I went to high school together. Mm -hmm. And in high school, this is during Vietnam... Uh, we had uh, announcements at the beginning 
of the school day. We had an assembly and at the end of it, we did announcements and he and I did, we were a comedy team and we did, if the, 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 you know, the debate club had events, we did announcements for the debate club event and we started becoming political in, you know, you don't, there's going to be a pep fest today. That's not very political, but we would put, we, we were combining comedy and politics then, and we were doing satirical comedy and the Smothers brothers were, were, uh, big at the time, uh, you know, and people like Mort Saul and Lenny Bruce and George Carlin and Dick Gregory, and those kind of people were people that we, that influenced us a lot. So, uh, we started doing comedy together in high school. We started doing a club in, in Minneapolis when we were in high school, that, that was a satirical review comedy place. Um, and so we were always combining politics and comedy. Um, the first bit we ever did on the show was called powwow with the press. And the premise was what if the Indians had won? <laughs> and so. Uh, I was the host, Howard K. Screaming Eagle, and he was from the Bureau of White Man Affairs. And we talked about the, some of the names of the major league lacrosse teams, like the Milwaukee Dagos and the, uh, how, uh, the white organizations were objecting to the, uh, screaming rabbi, uh, in say, uh, mascot for the Cleveland Kikes. And, and so. We were, that was the first bit we did on SNL. That show won an Emmy, very proud to say. So we were doing political satire uh, and a lot of the, the uh, political stuff that we did on SNL, I did with Tom, also with a guy named Jim Downey, who mm -hmm. um, is a very uh, famous, well-known, respected uh, satire, uh, political, well, comedy writer, just a brilliant comedy writer for, who did SNL for years and years and years. And he was a moderate Republican. And we, in those early days of the show, really felt that the job of the show was to do well-observed political comedy mm -hmm. and not have a partisan bent. Can you do that skit <clears throat> on SNL today? That's a really interesting, that's a great question because, um, uh, in the show, I'm going to show a bit from, I'm gonna, uh, I, I start the show with showing a few clips from, uh, from my career and we show that, but my kind of my political advisory team said, don't put that up on the internet because you know, the Cleveland kikes, right? You're going to anger and the kikes. I, I say that as a kike myself, as a Jew, a Jew, and I'm sitting with two Jews here. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I have creative yeah. license over that word, but. And that, that's, that's an argument I have with people all the time. Uh, but yeah, it's a really good question whether you could, I don't think you could do that, that today. But what, what I'm proud about that, this is like, we did this in 1976. It was January, 1976 when we did that bit. And that was what, how many years before the Redskins finally changed their names, you know? Mm-hmm. I had Judd Apatow on a while back, and we talked a lot about comedy and the changes in comedy and, and political correctness and things you can and can't do. I'm a huge R Richard Pryor fan. One of probably one of my favorite Pryor routines is his stuttering Chinese waiter. And I said, <laughs> something tells me you can't do that today. And he goes, no, probably not, because there's going to be oh. wait, Chinese waiters who are going to get offended, and we're sensitive to people being offended today in ways that we weren't back then. No, you can do, and you can't do, it's so funny. Like I do when I work up material for this tour and I'm doing a lot of new stuff. So I go to the comedy cellar and there are people working incredibly offensively in, in, in very funny way. <laughs> you know, there are black comedians who come up before me and use the N word constantly. And I, I love that when that happens, cause I get to go up and go like, you know, uh, Dimitri, uh, killed, but no wonder he stole my act. 
<laughs> it's like, I can't, you know, you, there's things you can't do and certain things people can do and can't do. And rightly so. And rightly so. How does that joke How land? Joke land? That joke kills every time. And I can do it for, I can do it for almost for about two thirds of the people I follow. Uh-huh. People uh, work incredibly dirty. <laughs> and, and uh you know and especially following a woman who's completely filthy i can use that joke and 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 it's funny when you discover a joke that works you know almost all the time following somebody when people look back on the first few years of saturday night live it's become this legendary period it's classic it's like oh my god what it must have been like to be in that studio with all those people when you think back on that initial period do you have like a favorite moment a favorite bit a favorite character uh well look uh there are bits the, the julia child bleeding to death is something that tom and i wrote at danny and that is sometimes things peak on air mm-hmm. and that you remember that uh, that was one of the few pieces that worked in dress, and we held it. We didn't do it. We knew it would work on air, but the blood wasn't quite right. And, you know, spurting blood was something I think we, that bit did. That was like the first spurting blood <laughs> bit on live TV. And... Uh, it was Danny as Julia Child cuts herself and then bleeds to death, and there's a lot of spurting blood. And uh, that's a special effect, the spurting blood. And there was a special effects guy uh, underneath the kitchen counter there uh, putting pressure on an insecticide uh, sprayer. <laughs> and <clears throat> he didn't quite get it right because... Tom and I had written the piece, and that's a special effects job, but we asked him if we could do it the next week and have Tom do pump the blood and uh, control the pressure <laughs> so he and Danny could get that absolutely right. And, uh, man, that, that, that special effects guy loved Tom, loved us, loved the bed. I said, sure, go ahead. Mm-hmm. And then so on air, when something works, gets get 100% of something, on air is just ecstasy. Mm-hmm. I'd say that if people ask me, then people say, what's the one thing you remember from Saturday Night Live for all your years? I did 15 seasons there. And the, the moments I remember really are three in the morning, Wednesday morning, Tuesday night, when the show got written. Because you have to design sets, you have to do so. You have to write the show that that part of the week and falling on the floor laughing, whether it's with Dana Carvey or with Gilda or other writers, Downey or Smigel, or the moment where you're falling on the floor laughing for two reasons: one, it's hilarious, and two, that's your job. <laughs> it's to you know, it's like, oh, I would imagine it's like at a law firm. And you find, you, oh, we got the argument. We, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. No, but there is that combination of just laughing hysterically and knowing, wow, we got something, you know? When you were doing that show, especially in the early years, did you ever in your wildest dreams think that that show would last, would just go on for 50 years? And even longer, perhaps, because it's not done yet. Um, no, I mean, no one could imagine that. Uh, I got there and looked at the people around me when we first got there and said to Tom, who was much more of a pessimist than I was, I said, this is going to be a hit. And nothing's a hit. Nothing ever is a hit. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are hits, but I mean, that. To say that at the beginning of anything is like insanely stupid in show business. Hmm. And so uh, I remember saying that to Tom and Tom going like, yeah, right. And you know, remember Tom is 24 years old at this time. 
So he's not exactly jaded, but, you know, I'm going like, this is going to be a hit. And, you know, we had Gilda, we had Danny, we had Belushi, we had Curtin, we had Lorraine, we had Garrett, we had Chevy. Uh, we had Michael Donahue writing. We had Zoybel. We had, we had all these, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this is going to be a hit. <laughs> and, and we had Lauren and, uh, and Tom just went, yeah, right. But um, I, I, you know, no one could have conceived of it going on this, anything going on this long. So then we jump ahead a bunch of years. You're about to walk into your first day as a U.S. senator. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's said to you, just don't be funny. You're not supposed to be funny. That's your past life. Don't do that here. Um, so that's, that's what my team had told me. Don't be funny. Don't be funny. Don't be funny. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I got it. Don't be funny. Don't be funny. So the first day I'm there, I get sworn in. I'm on the floor for a little bit. Take the subway back to my office. It was the first time I've been to my office. I wasn't allowed to be there until I was sworn in. I uh, get to my office, get to my desk. There's a slip of paper. And I see that one of your duties as a senator is to write congratulatory notes to constituents. And my first one is for Ruth Anderson of Marshall, Minnesota. And Ruth is turning 110. So I have my official stationery and I just write, dear Ruth, you've got a bright future. <laughs> and, um, my, uh, <laughs> uh, my new assistant comes in the first thing she gets from me takes it to my chief of staff he's in like in a flag what is this <laughs> I said well it's a joke she goes uh huh you think Ruth Anderson will find it funny I said I don't know she's 110 and he says okay you think her family will find it funny and I started thinking about her 90 year old son reading it and him going like you you've got a bright future what well, kind of mean but it's funny <laughs> it's funny it was funny and i but i rewrote it i wrote back uh, what's your secret or something like that yeah so you spent years in in the senate as everyone knows you resigned from the senate when you think about your resignation from like a that was then, this is now kind of moment, when you see the shit that's going on in Congress today, when you look at what the Republicans from Trump on down, whether it's Paul Gosar threatening to kill AOC, basically, when you look at Lauren Boebert, the handjob honey, when you look at Matt Gates, who's been under investigation for sex trafficking of a minor, and then you look back on your situation and your resignation, do you wish things would have been different in, oh that, in, in that context, you know? Did you well, think, did you it, think it, in the moment that what you uh, did was so bad and then reflecting back on it today, like, what do you think about it all? Well, of course, Jay Mayer wrote a piece in the New Yorker. I don't know if you mm -hmm. read that, but the accusation, that picture was a joke. I never touched her. She was lying about me um yeah i regret resigning every day i miss the senate tremendously i love my staff i love the work i loved having the impact that i had uh no it's a bitter regret and it was just the timing it was mm -hmm. you know uh, and it was deliberate it was a deliberate hit Mm -hmm. And Schumer threatened you. If you don't do this, we're going to do it for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It just seems yeah. crazy when you it's... think about what the other side allows today. <laughs> like where we've come, you know. Yep. 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 But the bigger question is, and, and, and uh, Donald Trump has taught us that you can leave office and, and run again. You could run again. I could. Um, Will you? I... Uh... I, I don't know exactly where I would do it. Uh, I'm living in New York now most of the time. I live in Minnesota some of the time. Uh, Tina Smith, who 
uh, succeeded me is still the senator. Um, you know, I spent some time in California. I have grandchildren. Uh, I've been married now for 47 years, many of them happy. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, so I, I don't know where I would do that. And I don't know if it's, um, I, I'm keeping it open, but, um, well, there's a lot of, I speak for a lot of, uh, libtards and, uh, a lot of people that would want you to do that, but. I also want to point out many of the Democrats who did demand that you resign have in the years since stated that they regretted. They now regret yeah. doing that. Big time. Yeah. Big time. Doesn't do me a lot of good. Though. Yeah. Well, but it's it should be pointed out for the record. So yeah. let's talk about the issues of the day. Let's start with the 215 pound gorilla in the room. Trump. Four indictments. 91 yeah, felony he, counts. 215 pound gorilla because he put that as his weight. Yeah. And he was uh, indicted in in Georgia. You know, they actually the Atlanta uh, Department of Corrections they they want your actual weight, not your target weight. That was wishful thinking on his part. What do you make of the, the legal trouble that he faces in the context of will it or will it not mean shit in terms of him ever possibly getting back in the Oval Office? Well, that's the that's the question now, right? I I just had uh, I just I have a podcast too. I had uh, uh, George Conway and Harry Lipman on to kind of discuss this, mm -hmm. their view of it. Uh, they feel like, and I think this makes a lot of sense that the first one to really be adjudicated is going to be uh, the January sixth case because it's one defendant. Mm -hmm. Is Georgia's schedule go first, but that's Cheeseboro or Chessboro and uh, Powell, I guess, have asked for early. And so it sounds like that's going to be three, four trials or something like that. And it's going to take months and months and months. Uh, the one in, in Washington, the January 6th trial, I think, is scheduled for March. The New York one, I think, is kind of a cipher. And the Florida one, <laughs> the Mar-a-Lago one, is sort of the most cut and dried. Uh, but, uh, and we have a witness, uh, I, her name uh, slips my mind for the moment, but um, one of his aides right. said that, uh, that or, you know nothing about the box. <laughs> Mo Molly Michael. Molly Michaels, yeah, that's you know perfect. About name. The, but when the feds come, you know nothing about the boxes. You know nothing about no boxes. You see nothing, you hear nothing. All those cardboard things in the bathroom, you don't see them. You don't talk oh, about that, them. We're on that stage. Yeah, the picture boxes on the stage because you know that's like the Mar-a-Lago theater. I, I bet you know it's like they they would have Second City come in every once in a while and do improvs they'd take out okay we're gonna take out one this is uh okay let's do an improv on iran's plan <laughs> if we bomb them if they get a nuke i mean like like uh it's mind-numbing is what it is it's crazy it, it really is and so that's the most cut and dry but then again that's not starting until may or something. So, so how does that, he, where does it go? Like we're in such an upside down world that literally a man who's indicted four times, 91 felony counts, facing four trials in four jurisdictions over the next 18 months, he's the front runner by 46 points. So given that context, anything is possible. I mean, we're actually living in a world where- this Anything sort of is possible. And of course, uh, we saw, was it yesterday? Uh, these things, uh, the uh, the, the uh, Merrick Garland hearing yeah. was so ugly, uh, or maybe it was the day before yesterday, um, and the, the Republican Party has just become, you know, a, a very key moment in the history, I think, of this country is Kellyanne Conway saying there's these things called alternate fa alternative facts. Right. And I remember her saying that, and, I'm, and I was going, a little bit old. <laughs> okay, that's that's funny, and then it's 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 devastating because what she was basically saying is there's this thing that's fake news, and Trump would say fake news, 
and fake news was left-wing fake news putting out fake lies of fake you know facts mm -hmm. and so that's why they need alternative facts so what you saw in this hearing the garland hearing was the republicans just laying out one just just lying 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 and Mayor Garland, one of the great public servants of this or any time, having to sit there <laughs> and, and uh, you know, maintaining his dignity like no no other human being can poss could possibly do because he's Mayor Garland. Mm -hmm. Well, he had this great quote that he had to remind them of multiple times. He's like, I was not the president's lawyer and I am not the Congress's prosecutor. Like the fact that the attorney general of the United States has to say that to members of the law and order party to establish exactly what the, like a civics lesson of what the Department of Justice and the attorney general, what their jobs are. Like we're living in very strange times. Was it like that at all for you personally when you were in the Senate? Because what we have today is just, it's lunacy, well, the, lunacy. The most impactful and worst incident of that was when Garland was nominated by President Obama to be justice. Right. And uh, it was in February. You remember Scalia died. Mm -hmm. And McConnell said, well, there's the, uh, Biden gave a speech in 88 or something. This was in June of 88 after the Supreme Court term had ended. And he was basically saying, if someone wants to resign, this is not dying. Someone wants to resign in June and in order to be replaced by a younger, more right-wing justice, uh, then in this election year, then you, at least the president has to run him by us and has to nominate a moderate. That's all he said. He has to nominate a moderate. McConnell took this all out of context and said, the Biden rule is you can't nominate a judge in an election year. And again, that was February. A guy died. Right. <laughs> and this was June. And he was just saying, like, if you're just going to move a guy over to get a more conservative guy, you got to consult us. You got to <laughs> consult. And then, of course, and, and I was on, I'm a, I was on judiciary. I was not a lawyer, but I played one in a sketch. And I, I just read from Biden's speech in our meetings, and it didn't matter. Obviously, I, I look across the table at you know Cruz and Cornyn and and the others, and they didn't they didn't care at all that what I was what I was saying. So I I was experiencing this yes then, and I was experiencing all kinds of stuff right from the very beginning, including McConnell, who I think broke the Senate uh, by filibustering. When I got there, I was the 60th Democrat, except that Ted Kennedy was sick. Mm -hmm. And so we had 59. And you need 60 votes to break a filibuster. And so McConnell would just filibuster everything to slow everything down. And in the during the Obama administration, he filibustered uh, the same amount of uh, executive nominees as had been filibustered in the entire previous history of the country. Hmm. So I was seeing it then. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's only gotten worse. I want to jump back to the Kellyanne Conway thing you mentioned for a second. You have had two very uniquely distinct, successful parts of your life over the years. I'm curious about, in your head, where the default might be. Like, when you watched Kellyanne Conway say that thing about alternative facts, was your immediate reaction political? Like, that's fucking crazy. Or were you wearing your Saturday Night Live hat going, this would be an awesome skit? Well, at the time, I was just, uh, I was out of the Senate by then. Or was I? No, I wasn't. I was in the Senate then. And I think, I don't recall the moment. So um, I, I don't remember exactly what, what was going through my head at the time. And, and 
I've done so much processing of it since that uh, because it's an enormous. I I, I had um, Ann Applebaum on about Ukraine mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about this, and she basically was saying, you know, when you can't agree on what happened yesterday, you, you it's incredibly damaging to democracy. And that moment really was incredibly damaging to our democracy. And I had George Conway on, I think, yesterday, and I hated to bring this up. (laughs) So they're split now, right? Or are they still together? I don't, I can't keep track. They were still together. No, now. Uh, They're still now? And I, I, I didn't ask him about that. I apologize, sir, for bringing up his, his ex-wife. Um, but to me, the combination of, you know, fake news, alternative facts, it was um, a, an incredibly destructive uh, construct mm-hmm. uh, to our democracy. And we... we uh, boy, did we see it in that that hearing with Garland? Oh my God, did we see it hearing with Garland? And oh my God, we're seeing it with Trump. And oh my God, it's dangerous. It's the most dangerous time I can uh, uh, can imagine. Yeah. Well, you and, have a, you have a party and, that that is okay with its members walking into Congress with guns, but not a hoodie. Like that's right. that's where we are today in terms of priorities and everything being upside down. I want to ask you, what's your take on the on the looming shutdown? Is that going to happen? Uh, it looks like, I, again, there's a nihilism here mm-hmm. on the Republican side, and I don't think they I don't think they care whether they're in the majority. These far right guys, I think they just care whether they get attention, whether they get money, whether they win. They don't care. They don't care if their more moderate members win or not. Mm-hmm. They don't. They're just as soon being in the minority, I think, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, shutdown of the government is, is always damaging. People always get hurt. It, it doesn't help anything. Um, but I, I, it feels like it's going to happen. It feels like it's going to happen. And I also don't know how long the speaker will be the speaker. Well, he seems to be in a real bind. He's in a no-win predicament, in my opinion. It, no wins from the very beginning, and I'm amazed it's it's taken this long, <laughs> you know, for for them to bring a vote. And feel like they're going to, but I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. Maybe the reason but, they can't pull that motion to vacate card is because who's in the wings? Who's who would replace him? Oh, well, uh, Scalise or someone like that. I don't know. I don't know. Um, that's 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 the house, right? Well, we got a couple minutes left. I'd like to have a little fun with you for a second before we go. If we can do a lightning round, I'm going to throw out the GOP candidates besides Trump. And if in a word or two or three, you can tell me what you think of them. Well, you brought up Pence. <laughs> Pence. And I, uh, he's fascinating to me because he's going to be the star witness <laughs> in the January 6th trial. And he is like, right now, he's at, I think, 2%. I think that's where he is mm-hmm. in the primary. And if you look at, okay, look at Republicans who love Trump. They hate Pence because mm-hmm. he certified the election. And if you look at people who hate Trump, they hate Pence. <laughs> because he, you know, sucked up to him, you know, for four years. So if you do a Venn diagram of people hate Trump, love Trump, I think there's a like a little. They don't connect, but there's a little, little circle there of Pence supporters. These are, uh, I say, uh, these would be um, uh, schizophrenic <laughs> evangelicals, and that's not. Uh, that's there's there's uh, tens of millions of evangelicals and there's more schizophrenics than people know, so there's something there. 
And I think that if Pence, um, you know, uh, when he gets on that stand, I think whatever his, the first question he's asked, the first thing he should say is, that motherfucker almost got me killed. <laughs> I think that would win him a lot of respect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think people go like, he's angry. I like this guy. What's his name? <laughs> and, and, you know, and then you get, then you get your independence, uh, schizophrenics, mm-hmm. uh, who don't usually vote, maybe will vote now. And it's, uh, so that's him. And then if he goes up, I think he'll, he might move past, uh, Ramaswamy and DeSantis if he did that. And at which point DeSantis, whose learning curve is really bad, would say, I was the first to go after the motherfucker fucking woke. Then he'd go down <laughs> after trying that one. Get the woke in a few times, for sure. He, uh, well, he did go after some motherfucking woke, uh, <laughs> like school librarians and and the truly dangerous. Uh, third, uh, you know, uh, there's a couple of school districts that censored "Beloved," you know, the Pulitzer Prize-winning book. What about Christie? Uh, he's just gonna. St- He's not going anywhere, but he's going to keep saying what he's saying. And the the big question is, does Trump make it all the way through? Hmm. And I guess part of what happens in the trials, but I would say he's going to be the nominee, wouldn't you? Well, conventional wisdom would certainly dictate that. But also in the last eight years or so, we know that conventional wisdom has been completely, utterly thrown out the window. So, you know, a, a year in politics is a lifetime, and you got a guy who's going to be on trial four times. I don't know. I, I, I'm not ready to say yet that it's, he's, the, he's the, the, the nominee. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be a fool to, to you know, make a fast prediction. Of, but I would, I, would, I would give him about 80% chance of being the nominee. Mm-hmm. And, would, and what about Joe Biden? Is he, too old? is he too old? I'm doing quotation marks for the people at home who can't see what I'm doing. Is he too old to be running for president? A book I'd recommend to people is Frank Foer's book, which is The Last Politician. And Frank, uh, it's, I, think, I think it's on the bestseller list now. It just came out. And if you know, if you know Biden, you know that he's not an old doddering guy. And you know how active he is and how active he's always been. Uh, Richard Ben Kramer's book, What It Takes. It, it's sort of the book on American politics, one of the classics. And there is a, it, it, it covers the 88 race. I think it was 88. And the profile of Biden is of this unbelievably energetic, peripatetic guy. And he was very hands-on. He's been very hands-on in this administration. And they made mistakes in Afghanistan, but they've done a magnificent job in, in Ukraine. But they and they've gotten an incredible amount done. An infrastructure package that's the biggest since uh, Eisenhower got the interstate highway system done. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, the poorly named Inflation Reduction Act, which invests in in this huge investment in climate. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you know. Yeah, is age of a legitimate issue? Yes, yes, it is. But again, Trump is eighty. Uh, is I'm sorry, is seventy seven, mm-hmm. and he has a certain kind of vitality, but he doesn't have the kind of vitality where he pays attention to policy. He has the kind of vitality where he wants to uh, change our system of government and put everything in the executive and. Uh, and it, it's a very scary uh, prospect of of of, of, of second term of his. Yeah, I, I think this whole age thing is just—it's ridiculous. The campaign should put together an ad for Biden, just a, a quick montage of him riding his bicycle, of him jogging a block, of him shooting some hoops for ten seconds, and also doing one or two push-ups, all of which we know he can do. And then he should look into the camera, put those you know, Brandon shades on and go too old. Come on, man. 
that would be a great ad because we know Donald Trump can't do any of that shit. And it would maybe take control of the narrative a little and put the age thing or the out of shape thing back on Trump where it belongs, aside from the uh, uh, oh, the no. fact that he's not qualified to, yeah, to serve as president. Put side by side a, a Trump body double trying to do that stuff. <laughs> yeah. So listen, you got a show coming up in a week, the 29th at the Ulster Performing Arts Center. Tell us about the show. Well, it's it's uh, I haven't done my concert, my, my concert show since February, but I've been workshopping this thing. So it's going to be, I, I'm in the process of developing a new tour. So this is going to be part of the stuff I've been developing and part of uh, the old tour. So it's going to be kind of a hybrid. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be some, uh, uh, it's exciting because there'll be, new material that people will hear that uh won't work that no one will ever hear again and um but <laughs> it's uh i did i did the, i did the, about 20 minutes last night at a club you know you i go down to the comedy cellar i go to other clubs and it's an exciting part of of it and i think i got um i, I it, it's one of the more exciting parts of a tour there's another exciting part of the tour when you really got the tour figured out. <laughs> but I think this is, uh, I'm gonna, so I don't even know how long I'm going to do. My, my feeling is I'll probably do longer than I usually do because I'm trying stuff out. And do you do and political commentary too? Uh, it's a lot of political stuff. I mean, to me, um, there's a, more autobiographical in the last, uh, part, which also was somewhat political, mm -hmm. but yeah, I'm a political person. So my audience is, it's very interesting. Cause when I go and do this, I go down to the comedy cellar, which is a great, great club. And they have great comics there, but I'm a guy doing, you know, political stuff. And there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, a lot of sex <laughs> and dating. <laughs> It, 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 there's a little bit of a, it's a younger audience a little, mm -hmm. and uh my audience tends to be people who are uh are my audience and who tend to uh and, and there can be young people too who are interested in politics and interested in what's happening and um it's not all politics but it's it's stuff it's public policy as well mm -hmm. and nobody on your staff tells you before you go on stage don't be funny right they know this uh, isn't the time for that, right? That is not no. That that would uh, they'd be you're fired <laughs> because crazy. No, this is uh, right. be funny. Where this can the people funny. buy tickets if they want to go? I don't know. <laughs> uh, the Ulster Performing Arts Center is the place, and it's in Kingston. If they go to the website for the Ulster Performing Arts Center. Mm -hmm that the Ulster Performing Arts Center uh, could tell them where to get tickets for the Friday, September 29th uh, Al Franken show. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to be there myself. There, are you going to be there? I'm going to try to be there, yeah. Yeah. It'd be nice to say hi in person if, I, if, I am, if I'm there. You deserve comps. Those are complimentary tickets. All right. I know your team. I'll be asking. Okay. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll put your name at Will Call. Sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, right. And this is me next week. No, Al said there's tickets waiting for me. He said it himself. Um, and then if this happens, this is like, this is something I can accomplish. I think it's in your wheelhouse. I, I trust that you can make this happen. For the people out there listening, Al Franken is smart as fuck. He's funny as fuck. And this is going to be an amazing show. So... Check it out. Get tickets and go. Al, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a big thrill. I'm a huge fan. Again, I speak for a lot of people when I say I do hope to see you in a suit or a hoodie or whatever you want to wear back as a U.S. senator somewhere, wherever you want to run. You have my vote if I can vote for you. So thanks for coming on. This was a lot of fun. And good luck with the show. Thank you. And, and I hope you come. I hope yeah. you can make it. All righty. Thanks, Al. Hey, you bet. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, Andy. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. 
And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week. Thank you.